Welcome to WADA, ADA Live Talk Radio, brought to you by Southeast ADA Center, your leader for information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And here's your host. Good afternoon and welcome to WADA ADA Live. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to the 19th episode of ADA Live. In this episode, we will discuss before attorneys come knocking, readily achievable barrier removal. Under the ADA, facilities are required to be accessible so that people with disabilities have an equal opportunity to enjoy the goods, services, and programs that businesses, nonprofits, and state and local government offer to the general public. Some people think that only new construction and alterations need to be accessible and that older facilities are grandfathered in, but that's not true. ADA Live listening audience, you can submit your questions about before attorneys come knocking, readily achievable barrier removal at any time on adalive.org. My name is Cherie Hoffman, and I am the Distance Learning Coordinator for the Southeast ADA Center and your host for today's show. Now I'd like to introduce your speaker for today, Rebecca Williams. Technical Assistance Specialist for the Southeast ADA Center. Hi, Rebecca, and thank you for being our speaker today. Thanks, Cherie, and I'm glad to be here. Well, last month our show was called When Attorneys Come Knocking, How Accessible Is Your Business? And that show discussed how business owners can begin to check their businesses to make sure they are accessible to cut their customers with disabilities. The ability to access goods and services is critical for everyone. Some of the listeners to this month's program may not have tuned in to last month's show. How about if we begin by discussing basic accessibility requirements for business owners? Sure, Cherie. Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act requires businesses and nonprofit organizations give people with disabilities the same opportunity to access their goods and services that they provide to the general public. Now, Title III refers to these private businesses and organizations as public accommodations. So the first thing, really, that business owners need to figure out is, is my business a place of public accommodation? Title III regulations define a public accommodation as a facility whose operations affect commerce, and that fall into within at least one of 12 general categories. Now, I'm going to just briefly tell you what those general categories are, and they include places of lodging, establishments that serve food or drink, places of exhibition or entertainment, public gathering spots, sales establishments, service establishments, that's just six. We've got six more to go. Uh, transportation, but think Greyhound here. Places of public display or collection. Places of recreation. Private educational facilities. Social services centers. And last but not least, places of exercise. 
Now, I know this is a really long list, and it could get confusing, and there may seem to be some overlap between categories. So I would encourage folks, if they have any question as to whether their business falls into one of these general categories, to go ahead and give their national or regional, I'm sorry, regional ADA center a call at 1-800-949-4232. And the information on the National ADA Network will also be listed on our resource page. Well, thank you, Becky. It sounds as though public accommodations cover just about anywhere people spend money. You know, Cherie, that's a great way to look about look at it. Just about any place a person can spend money and get something in return, whether it's a tangible object like groceries or service like a haircut or getting your taxes completed, or entertainment like a concert or a movie theater is considered a place of public accommodation. And it may be easier for folks to remember that a public accommodation is a private place of business where goods and services are sold or offered to the public. Well, you mentioned earlier that business owners must give persons with disabilities the opportunity to access their goods and services that they provide to the general public. What exactly does that mean? Well, what it means, Cherie, is that business owners must remove architectural barriers so that people with disabilities have equal access to obtain whatever it is the business provides. Now, the folks at the Department of Justice realize that it might not always be possible to remove all architecture barriers, and that's why the requirement calls for readily achievable barrier removal. And what this means basically is that readily achievable is easily accomplishable and able to be carried out without much difficulty or expense. And so what is the the readily achievable decision is made on a case-by-case basis, Cherie. Business owners have to consider the size of their business, the overall finances of the business, and the nature and cost of the access improvements needed when looking at is this going to be readily achievable. Now, sometimes, Cherie, increasing access will not require an outlay of cash at all. Sometimes simple things like rearranging tables could increase access in a restaurant for people using wheelchairs or adjusting the layout of racks and shelves in a store might also permit greater wheelchair access. And so I'm referring to minor adjusting here. Uh, Business owners aren't required to rearrange merchandise displays uh, if this action would result in a significant loss of selling or serving space. Another thing about readily achievable barrier removal that I'd like to make business owners aware of is that barrier removal that is difficult now may be readily achievable in the future as finances change or business grows. For example, let's say a small business owner opens in an existing facility. They survey their facility for possible accessibility issues and determine that there are places that their facility is not accessible and doesn't meet the ADA 2010 standards for accessible design. So let's say at the time they open, they don't have the capital to fund the needed renovations. Let's fast forward a couple years. The business has done well and has had profits each year. Now they may be able to afford to make these changes so that it's readily achievable. So business owners got to keep in mind that You don't look at the business once to decide what's readily achievable. It's an ongoing process until the business is fully accessible. 
Well, I think determining how to make a business accessible sounds like a really daunting task. I think here might be a good spot to talk about where a business owner should begin. And I would like to throw that 800 number out there again for folks to call if they have questions. And their regional number across the entire United States is 800-949-4232. So, Becky, where should a business owner begin? Well, Cherie, I agree that determining where to begin may appear as quite a challenge for some folks. The Department of Justice, Title III ADA regulations for, again, places of commerce, suggest the following priorities for providing access. The first thing we need to look at is the accessible approach and entrance. Priority two, then, we look at access to goods and services. The third priority is access to public toilet rooms. And the fourth priority would be access to other items such as water fountains and public telephones. Well, can you walk us through what a business owner might do to see if their business complies with Priority 1? We get a lot of questions about accessible parking. Wouldn't this fall under Priority 1? Absolutely, Cherie. Accessible parking does fall under Priority 1, so it's a great place to start. Now, if parking is provided at a place of business, then that business owner needs to determine if their parking facility has the correct number of accessible parking spaces. The regulations use the term parking facility instead of the term parking lot to make it clear that both parking lots and parking structures are required to comply. Also, the number of required accessible parking spaces is to be calculated separately for each parking facility. Once one knows how many accessible parking spaces are required, business owners need to determine that if any accessible parking spaces are there, do they currently meet the 2010 ADA standards for accessible design? And we will give you a link to these standards in the resource pages for this show. Now, one thing about accessible parking that I want to caution listeners about is that they should also consult with their state accessibility code before making alterations or renovations for access. Many states have adopted the 2010 ADA standards for accessible design as their accessibility code, but some states have different requirements that provide more access than the 2010 standards. For example, Cherie, the state of Florida requires all vehicular parking spaces to be 12 feet wide, whereas the 2010 ADA standards for accessible design require vehicular spaces to be eight feet wide. So in this situation, Florida business owners must meet the more generous Florida requirements. So let's continue with priority one, the accessible approach and entrance. And there are many factors to consider when determining if the approach to your business is accessible. We include here the walking surface. Is it firm, stable, and slip resistant? We look at is the slope, making sure it's not too steep, whether it's wide enough for people using wheelchairs, and that's just the beginning. Now, not all of these features are on every path of travel, but many will come into play. And on top of all this, the accessible route must lead to the accessible entrance. Business owners also need to look at their accessible entrance. Maneuvering clearances, door hardware operating parts, thresholds, and the door closing speed are several items that must be considered. 
Wow, Becky, and all that, and we're not even inside the business yet. <laughs> yeah, it sure does seem like a luxury, but business owners don't need to figure this out all on their own. There's a great, easy-to-use ADA checklist for existing facilities, and we can talk about that later on in the show. I'd like to thank you for all this great information. And ADA Live listening audience, if you have a question about readily achievable barrier removal, you can submit it at any time at our online forum at adalive.org. And now I would like to have a word from our sponsors. The Southeast ADA Center is your leader in providing information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act and disability access tailored to the needs of business, government, and individuals at local, state, and regional levels. The Southeast ADA Center, located in Atlanta, Georgia, is a member of the ADA National Network and serves eight states in the Southeast region. For answers to your ADA questions, contact the ADA National Network at 1-800-949-4232. Welcome back to the second part of our program. Our topic today is Before Attorneys Come Knocking, Readily Achievable Barrier Removal. At this time, we'd like to welcome back Rebecca Williams to the show. Rebecca, you were going to tell us about the ADA checklist for existing facilities. Sure, Cherie. The ADA checklist for existing facilities is a great tool developed by the New England ADA Center. This wonderful document can be found at www.adachecklist.org, and we will also have a link to the checklist on our resource page. The checklist is very easy to follow and has lots of great features. It has step-by-step -step instructions for going through a facility and checking the different elements at a site under each of the four priorities we mentioned earlier. It also has pictures and diagrams, helpful hints, and suggested tools to assist with taking measurements. And folks can fill it out online, but they're also encouraged to print copies and use it during their site surveys. Rebecca, it seems like there is so much to know. Can someone without prior ADA knowledge use the checklist? Absolutely, Cherie. The beauty of the checklist is in its simplicity. Now, the checklist is set up in columns. First, the required standard for an element is listed. The next column is a place for the actual measurements, followed by a column for notes and comments, and then a column that gives the possible solutions if the element does not comply. There are great diagrams throughout the checklist which indicate how something is to be measured or how it should look. It's a very thorough document, but it's simple. it is a simple tool to use. Keep in mind, Cherie, this is a basic tool to assist business owners survey to see if their business complies with the ADA 2010 standards for accessible design. Now, before a business owner plans to make readily achievable barrier removal, they should make sure that their contractor has a copy of the 2010 standards, and they should talk with their contractor about each element they want changed. I also want to point out that the checklist does not cover all of the scoping requirements in the 2010 standards. For example, there are no questions about patient rooms in hospitals or guest rooms in hotels. So if a business owner uses this checklist and there are areas in the business that are not covered in it, what you are saying is that the business owner is still responsible for making sure that every part of the business meets 
the 2010 ADA standards. Is that right? Yes, that is correct, Cherie. Now, the checklist is a good place to start, but it's not intended to be a comprehensive check on every part of a business. There are some other things that our listeners need to understand when they are trying to figure out if their business complies with the ADA. You see, there are two different versions of the ADA standards, and which one applies depends on when the business was built or altered. The two standards are the 1991 ADA standards and the 2010 ADA standards for accessible design. Well, can you explain what this means? Sure, Cherie. If an element in a building was built or altered before March 15, 2012, and if the part or element complied with the 1991 ADA standards, then it doesn't have to be modified so that it now meets the 2010 standards. And this applies even if the specifications for that element has changed. Let me give you an example. The 1991 standards allow paper towel dispensers to be hung at a maximum height of 54 inches. But the 2010 standards lowers that to 48 inches maximum. Now, if a paper towel dispenser installed prior to March 15, 2012, had its highest operating part at 54 inches, the dispenser does not need to be lower to 48 inches. Because the dispenser complied with the 1991 standards, then complying with the 91 standards provides a safe harbor for that element. Another change was made in the 2010 standards to fix a problem with accessible parking spaces. In the 1991 standards required an 8-foot space for van and vehicle parking plus an 8-foot access aisle. But people were parking in the 8-foot access aisle, which blocked anyone with a side wheelchair lift from getting in and out of their van. So the 2010 standards now require an 11-foot van parking space with a 5-foot access aisle. And this change for a specific larger van space and a smaller access aisle an op change was put into place to discourage people from parking in the access aisles. Again, this can be kind of confusing to know, uh, is there a safe harbor? Do I need to follow the 91 standards or the 2010? And folks can always call the regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232 and talk with their information specialists there. Wow, that's a lot of information again, Rebecca. Can you explain again what a safe harbor means? Absolutely. Safe harbor applies to properties that were built or altered before March 15, 2012. If the elements in that building complied with the 1991 standards, they do not have to be changed just to meet the 2010 standards. But, and it is important to understand, that if part of a building is renovated or altered, then the elements must be brought into compliance with the 2010 standards. Thanks, Rebecca. Here's another question. When a business owner is checking their property and there are two possible standards that might apply, how does a business owner know which one applies? Is it the 1991? Is it the 2010 ADA standards for accessible design? That's a great question, Cherie, and the ADA checklist takes care of that. If there are elements that could fall under a safe harbor, this information is listed in the possible solutions column. 
as I said previously, it's a very user-friendly checklist. Also, if a business owner has concerns as to whether they've used the checklist correctly, they could contact their local center for independent living and ask for a site survey or assistance with their assist I'm sorry, assistance with their assessment. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> uh, locations for centers for independent living can be found by visiting the National Council on Independent Living website at www.ncil.org. And then also keep in mind the 10 regional ADA centers throughout the United States. And callers can connect there, again, with 1-800-949-4232. But another great thing that business owners can do, Cherie, is ask their customers who have disabilities for feedback on the accessibility of their facility. You know, happy customers mean loyal customers, which means income for the business owner. Business owners should keep in mind the power of the referral. You know, Cherie, word will spread about the accessibility or inaccessibility of a business. And I have two more pieces of information about the ADA checklist I'd like to share with our audience in a minute. And that's a good segue for us to have a word from our sponsors. The ADA National Network provides information, guidance, and training on the Americans with Disabilities Act tailored to meet the needs of business, government, and individuals at local, regional, and national levels. The ADA National Network consists of 10 regional ADA centers in the United States, providing local assistance to ensure that the ADA is implemented wherever possible. The ADA National Network is not an enforcement agency but a helpful resource supporting the ADA's mission to make it possible for everyone with a disability to live a life of freedom and equality. Welcome back, ADA Live listening audience, to the third part of our program. We have Rebecca Williams, Technical Assistance Specialist for the Southeast ADA Center, about what business owners should know when checking their business for accessibility. We've been talking about the ADA checklist for existing facilities, and you said you had two more things that you wanted to tell us about, Becky. Uh, yes, the 2010 standards contain elements that were not in the 1991 standards. And this includes things like amusement rides, recreational boating facilities, exercise machines and equipment, fishing piers and platforms, golf facilities, miniature golf facilities, play areas, swimming pools, wading pools, and spas, and shooting facilities with firing positions. Now, because these elements were not in the 1991 standards, they are not subject to the safe harbor exemption. And what this really means, Cherie, is that all of those type of recreational facility type, type um, Title III entities that are now in the 2010 standards, those Current facilities must undergo readily achievable barrier removal. For example, a hotel has to decide whether it would be readily achievable to make its swimming pool accessible by either installing a lift, a sloped entry, or both as specified in the 2010 standards. A boat marina must decide if it can make its docks accessible. Amusement parks such as Six Flags, Disney, Universal Studios, and Busch Gardens must perform readily achievable barrier removal to increase access. And Cherie, listeners can learn more about some of the requirements for recreational facilities by listening to two of the WADA Live Archive shows. We did an Episode 7 on access to pools, 
in Episode 9 on access to play areas. And we will provide the link for those on our resource page. Now, business owners also need to keep in mind that when a primary function area of an existing facility is altered, the path of travel to that area, which includes restrooms, telephones, drinking fountains serving the area, must also be made accessible, but only to the extent that the cost of doing so would not exceed 20% of the cost of the alterations to the primary function area. And the last item I want to mention is that the ADA Title III regulations require more than physical access and barrier removal. The Title III regulations include requirements for non-discriminatory policies and practices and for the provision of auxiliary aids and services, such as sign language interpreters for people who are deaf and material and braille for people who are blind. The checklist does not cover these type of requirements. I think you've provided good information for our listeners to get a basic understanding of readily achievable barrier removal. Do you think we could talk about some specific solutions for readily achievable barrier removal? Absolutely, Cherie. First, though, we need to remember that there is no single definitive answer as to what is readily achievable for a business. That's because what is readily achievable in terms of not much difficulty or expense for one business might be very difficult for another business. So determining what is readily achievable must be made on a case-by-case or business-by-business basis. But the Department of Justice regulation does give us a list of 12 examples of modifications that may be readily achievable. I'll list just a few, and listeners can find a full list and other parts of the regulations on our resource page after the program. So some of these readily achievable barrier removals are um, installing a ramp or curb cut in a sidewalk at entrances, rearranging tables, chairs, vending machines, display rack, other furniture, adding raised markings on elevator control buttons, installing offset hinges to widen doorways, installing grab bars in toilet stalls, and rearranging toilet petitions to increase maneuvering space, insulating lavatory pipes under the sink to prevent burns from somebody who is sitting in a wheelchair, and creating accessible parking spaces. And those are just a few of the readily achievable barrier removal that the Department of Justice has come up with. So let's talk about some renovations that might be readily achievable. One frequent complaint that I get when answering calls, Cherie, is about inaccessible customer restrooms. Now, I understand that restroom renovations can be costly, but sometimes it can actually be readily achievable to convert a single-user's men and a single-user's women restroom that are side-by-side into an accessible unisex restroom rather than converting both single-user restrooms into accessible facilities. Now, of course, a business owner should consult with a contractor or architect to determine if such a project is technically feasible, but this is one possible solution, just convert into one unisex usable bathroom. Cherie, I also get a lot of calls about facilities that don't have power-assisted doors or are too hard to open. Now, most folks don't realize that the ADA standards do not require power-assisted doors. Exterior doors are usually fire doors and must meet the fire code requirements set of the appropriate administration authority. However, if an exterior door requires a great deal of force to pull open, a business owner could simply replace those doors with less heavy ones 
and he could also reduce the opening force to the minimum required by the local fire code. That's another example of readily achievable barrier removal. Speaking of doors, when doors don't have the required maneuvering clearances so someone in a wheelchair can get through, sometimes an easy fix is as simple as changing where the hinges are placed, removing them from the inside or the outside of the door itself or vice versa. So, Cherie, those are just a few examples of low-cost barrier removal. I'd also like to remind business owners that there are tax incentives available to encourage compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act standards for accessible design. Unfortunately, Cherie, many business owners are unaware that these incentives exist. And we would like to encourage business owners to make sure you take advantage of these valuable incentives. A link to a document on tax incentives will be included with our resource page for this show. Thanks for those examples, Rebecca. I hope our listening audience has a better understanding of what types of businesses fall under Title III of the ADA, as well as an increased knowledge of readily achievable barrier removal. At this time, I would like to thank our guest speaker, Rebecca Williams. We invite folks to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the ADA. This is a big year for us. July 26, 2015 is the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, and we invite everyone to be a part of the nationwide ADA 25 celebration. Please go to online to www.adaanniversary.org and sign the ADA pledge. Now, this pledge is not a money pledge. It's just a pledge saying, I support the ADA, that we are glad it's here, and that we believe in access for everybody. We also invite you to explore the ADA Anniversary Toolkit. It's packed full of ideas and information. Please learn, connect, and share the ADA Anniversary at www.adaanniversary.org. The Southeast ADA Center is grateful for your support and participation in the series of ADA Live broadcasts. Join us next month on the first Wednesday, which will be May 6th. See you next month on www.adalive. Thank you for listening to ADA Live Talk Radio. Brought to you by the Southeast ADA Center. Remember to join us the first Wednesday of each month for another ADA topic. And you can call one 800 949 4232 for answers to your ADA questions.